Hello, everybody. This episode of Say Here is brought to you by Chris Wilson and Shane on fucking Mara. Episode 44 of the See Here podcast. Welcome. Morris speaking here from Melbourne. And my good friend and learned colleague, Mr. Tim Merrill, over in Seoul. Hey, hey. Hey, hey. How are you? I'm well. Unfortunately, big compadre, Mr. Bernard Stickwell, is not available to join us, but I believe that he's gone off to a reunion of Stiff Little Fingers to see them live. Ah, so Sticky Fingers sees the Stiff Little Fingers. Correct. Interesting. So uh, the two of us are going to have to plow on on our own some this time, Ram. Right. But uh, we have a rather interesting show ahead for you. About a week ago, Tim and I had the good fortune to be able to speak to a new local. When I say local, as in local in Melbourne, a new local film director. His name is Chris Franklin, and he specialises in making short films about Melbourne musicians. He's very passionate about film and he's very passionate about the Melbourne music scene, which for me in particular is a very exciting thing. And he's just gone and made a film called Chris Wilson Live at the Continental. Now, I want to put this a little bit in context before we sort of go on with our discussion. For those of you outside of Australia who may not know who Chris Wilson is, Chris is a harmonica player, singer extraordinaire, really, I think I've used the expression a force of nature. And if you you've seen him, you know exactly what I mean by that. But he's been playing in bands, I think since the 80s, he was playing originally in bands like Harem Scarum and the Soul Twisters, but really came into his own with his band, The Crown of Thorns. And they recorded an EP and a couple of albums, really, really great, but very hard to come by. If you're in Melbourne and you listen to 3 Triple R, and particularly on a Thursday night, the Son of Crawdaddy show hosted by Max Crawdaddy, then you're certainly a fan of Chris Wilson. And Max Crawdaddy has a lot to do with the initial upbringing of Chris Wilson as a musical artist. I think he financed his first couple of albums. And also, Chris did a lot of session work for many people, but in particular, two that I want to note here. Paul Kelly and the Coloured Girls, he played with them for a couple of tours, I think, and he's also on a couple of the early albums and might know of the song Dumb Things. I think in the film Young Einstein but over here it was on his album Under the Sun and also he plays harp on the uh, crowded house tune Chocolate Cake I 
Now, if you go back and listen to an interview that I did with Chris on the Love That Album podcast just a couple of months ago, there's a really terrific story. I won't spoil it. Go back and listen to the podcast where Chris describes about what Created House wanted Chris to do in the film clip of Chocolate Cake. And it incurred the wrath of Chris's mother and also of the Bull sisters, and particularly Vicar Bull. And you do not piss off Vicar Bull. So anyway, post Crown of Thorns, Chris Wilson went and put together an incredible band featuring drummer Peter Luscombe, bass player Bill McDonald, and guitarist Shane O'Fucking Mara. And why do we say that? Well, more will become apparent as we go into our interview with Chris Franklin. But after a couple of years of playing in that incarnation of a band, Shane and Chris struck it out on their own and really they were quite beloved of Melbourne music goers played umpteen nights a week they were really probably the hardest working musicians in Melbourne at the time in the early 90s and one venue that they played a lot was a really missed venue called the Continental Cafe and I went to the Continental Cafe to see them a number of times and to see many other artists a bunch of times at the Continental Cafe and Chris Franklin in our interview with him describes just how important the Continental Cafe was on the local music scene and during that time they recorded an album called Chris Wilson Live at the Continental which featured both Chris and Shane but also pianist called Jack Saralat. You can't understate just how important this album was at the time and I think to a lot of people my age and a lot of people who went to the Continental Cafe at the time this album still looms quite large in their listening at the time and also really in the whole Chris Wilson music catalogue. So where does that come to now? Well, Chris Franklin decided he wanted to make a film that celebrated many years later that particular album, but as becomes apparent in our interview with him, the film turned it to be something quite different. The Live of the Continental album does feature, obviously, in the film and its importance, but it becomes something quite different. So I've gone and yapped on enough. I just want to ask you, Tim, when you came here to visit me and you mentioned you know, that you were a fan of Chris. I can't remember, did I introduce you to Chris Wilson's music or did you discover it some other way? I'm not exactly sure where I first heard Chris, but when I did, it became clearly evident and this was a guy that I would have to open my ears to a little wider. The one thing I wanted to say about the situation with the Live at the Continental is I think it's funny how music is almost like sports in the sense that local punters or local fans... They know what the local talent can do, and they've seen it again and again and again. And anybody on the outside just sometimes often hears it as just a lot of lip service, you know, all, you know, local boy does good, this kind of thing. And then you see this guy batting home runs, you know, one after another, and suddenly it becomes clearly evident that everybody outside can see what's going on inside. And I think that kind of situation is found in almost every major city on the planet. It's just that sometimes the music and the kind of uh, interplay between musicians speaks volumes and you don't have to even be a local to see that it's clearly evident. The best part of it is walking in as a complete greenie, mm. you know, from the outside and seeing something going, oh my God, what is this? And the locals, they're either spoiled, yeah, 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 it's just this guy, you know, they play here every week, you know, or they're just like, yep, yep, this is what I've been telling you about. We're damn lucky to have him. He's a national treasure, you know, and I think that kind of goes without saying with Chris Wilson in the Melbourne scene. The music, as becomes evident in this film, 
obviously the, the two of them they came from a couple of different places you know chris started out as a big blues fan and uh, obviously he still is and you know you've seen him wear all those t-shirts with pictures of blind lemon jefferson or your favorite howlin wolf mm-hmm. and the like so that's what influences a lot of what he does but there's so much more and if you listen to the early crown of thorns records i hear some captain beefheart in there who himself would have been influenced by a lot of those early blues records oh, but yeah. it just goes to some really really unusual places. When you went to see that lineup that was on the Landlocked album, they weren't really Crown of Thorns, at least not listed on the album jacket, but he would still continue to introduce them as Crown of Thorns in a live setting. But there was just something that they did. I use the word force and nature. The whole band, everyone was in sympathy with what everyone else in the band was doing. It was like, as I think Chris Franklin says, almost like a religious experience watching what these guys did. We go into this further into the interview, but I think you went and said to Chris, it's just so important to be an archivist. And really what he's doing here is fighting the good fight. And he wanted to make sure that there were not going to be people 10, 15 years down the track who didn't know who Chris Wilson was. And now we have this little record of who he is. And again, you know, I mean, obviously a recorded output is no comparison to the live setting. But at the same time, it kind of goes back to what I was just saying earlier about the outsiders not really being aware of the significance or the raw talent that's kind of evident in, a, in an environment, you know, or in a city. And then what happens is, you know, you get the live recording, and you're like, well, listen to this. And that's when everybody who weren't in the know was just like, damn, I wish I was there to be a fly on the wall for that. And that's what's so important about the archivism. I think it's also, though, as much to encourage people, doesn't matter that you don't have Chris Wilson in your city, you will have a Chris Wilson in your right. city. Right, well, that's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Go out and support your local scene but as discussed in our interview which we'll get to in a minute this film ends up being more than just about the music it's about the relationship between chris and shane they were simpatico as musicians but as you can see they're also simpatico as two great friends and it's a a film about a relationship between two people who just happen to be musicians anyway look we've rambled on long enough let's get straight to our interview with chris franklin and we'll come back at the other side and talk to you about what we're going to do for episode 45 of See Here. You're listening to See Here, episode 44 with myself and Tim. Playing music live, where else can you get that outlet? It's always instantaneous, it's spontaneous, it's often hilarious, sometimes it's rocky. That conscious decision of like playing that show like it is your last is a really great maxim to to embrace the live situation. It's always worth it though. You know? I didn't have access to blues music, I was just a white kid in the suburbs, you know. Goddamn anticipation 
as coquettish as a bride. Welcome back to episode 44 of the See Here podcast. Morris over here, Tim over there, and we're very, very excited because on the other end of a Skype connection, we have a guy called Chris Franklin, who's a local film director and music enthusiast who's gone and directed a new film called Chris Wilson Live at the Continental. Welcome, Chris, to the show. Hey, Morris. Hey, Tim. Thanks very much for joining us. Now, I first heard about your film as a Facebook post that came up, I think it's a sponsored thing in my Facebook feed, and I was very, very excited to see that someone had gone and made a film about Chris. Before we sort of go talking about that film and what sort of prompted you to do it, I just want to sort of get a little bit of a background as to your own filmmaking endeavours. When did you first sort of get interested in the idea of making films and in particular making music-related films? I've been a stills shooter for about 25 years, so I'm a portrait photographer and that's what I do for a living or for bread and butter. But since I moved to Melbourne from Ballarat, I've always had a huge interest in live music. Melbourne's is the um, Australian capital of live music and we are extremely spoiled for choice of really really great music here so I would go along to bands and, and take pictures you know probably like quite a lot of other photographers and then about six or seven years ago I did a project it was actually not related to music but I did a project and um, thought it could be told with a little bit more strength and so that's when I morphed into using video and started creating uh, video projects and then I then thought I should start making videos about some of my music projects so that's when I approached a few bands and, and kicked it off that way. Are you looking to do something like in the long term on a longer scale because the films that you've made have all been quite short very much to the point and really wonderful but would it be your grand dream to make a feature film or at least an hour long sort of thing not necessarily and i think the nature of the internet has created this amazing niche so before if you made a film you would get it out there and perhaps get into the cinemas or it needed to be of a decent length to get someone out of their house to go and see it so now obviously as we know you can sit down on vimeo and you can watch a documentary that might be uh, five minutes or one minute or 30 minutes or in this case 18 minutes and you can still tell a really really compelling story a beautifully shot story and it doesn't need the length because you don't need the effort of getting someone to get into their car and drive to the cinema to watch it so if you jump on Vimeo and type in documentary and and sit back there's thousands of really beautiful made documentaries to watch I guess the other thing about that is in this day and age with technology being comparatively cheap it also means that people can make a lot more niche documentaries I guess the other thing from years ago with making films that were going to be an hour and a half to two hours long that you were going to see in the cinema you were only ever going to see things that were maybe in the mainstream consciousness and I guess particularly with music movies like the last 10-15 years or so we're seeing documentaries about all sorts of artists who you know diehard music fans were always hoping there'd be something made about but really up until the last 15 years wouldn't have dreamed of, of seeing just because there would have been great expense in, in the past doing it. What I like about your format is that in my mind it's almost like a carnival barker where you're out in the front and you, you want to put everybody behind the curtain but you don't want to show them everything that's behind the curtain. You want to kind of give them a little taste and then you're kind of like you know ah oh, you like that huh? Well then come and have a peek behind the curtain. There's a whole world there that I, I can't really show you right now but it's there and I know you'll love it. If you like this there's more behind the curtain right? So I mean in a small format 
you're actually just kind of piquing their interest or you're kind of giving them just a little a smidgen. I think that's the hardest part about creating a piece or a video or a documentary is what to put in and what to leave out. Morris, you've even interviewed uh, the guy that made uh, the kookaburra and the oh, that... Uh, yeah, Harry Hayes, who made the film... Um, yeah. Uh, uh, you better take cover, yeah, about men at work. And- yeah, that's right. And I remember he said exactly the same thing. That the, the hardest thing is I want to put everything in because in regards to Chris Wilson and Shane O'Mara, I'm interested in everything that they have to say. So I sat with them for an hour each and uh, or longer, but, but sort of like a formal interview for an hour each and was intrigued by absolutely everything they said, even when they got off topic, when they came back on topic. But I've got to think, well, who is the audience? Now, mainly in this case, the audience that will be watching this short documentary will be people that will know who Chris and Shane are. Um, If if it was a little bit broader, then that is a real dilemma because there is so many little bits and pieces that don't make it into this little film because I would create a version, I think in the end I created 50 versions but I'd create a version I'd show it to my mentor and he'd say yeah you got to cut it down you got to cut it down you got to tighten it up <laughs> and I say but I love that bit where he says yeah I know but you know think of who's going to watch it you got to tighten it up it is the, the toughest part so as you say Tim what to leave in and what to leave out you're right it, once you would watch this 18 minute doco I'd love to start again and <laughs> make it to our doco to give you your credit for the the short amount of time that you put into this there's a lot of things that come out of this you've nailed the absolute honesty and just you know like straightforward bare bones of who chris is himself and the other thing that i really get out of this too and morris and i had talked about this you know a couple days ago as i said that i've seen new aspects of chris that i never really considered before and that's from someone you know who's listened to chris and this isn't just something where like you said people that will watch this mainly are people who know chris's music and his background and they'll say oh you know like give me something i don't know there is something in this that you've done that really will give people another layer or a completely different kind of take on who Chris Wilson is, I think. I think the strength in anything, whether it's a film project or whether it's business or whether it's life, I think the strength is authenticity. Right. And if, if you can be authentic in, say, in uh, Chris and Shane's case, when you see them on stage, they're authentic. When I was talking to them in the interview, they're authentic. And it comes across. If I interviewed someone or you watched someone on stage, we've probably all been to a gig and we've watched them and it's evident that they're putting on a face or trying to be something that they're genuinely not and you very quickly lose the connection or the interest in in their performance right whereas these guys are deeply honest I think. I mean, they're not going to tell you all their personal lives, but all their personal moments in their lives. But just a real genuineness for an authenticity towards the music that they're playing and the way they present it. And I think it's a really beautiful thing to watch. What you were talking about, people going up there and just doing the routine, it's what I like to call the Vegas sticks. You're you're playing night after night after night and you're just giving people the repeat performance. But there's the one piece in your short where you're talking about where I think Shane says, you know, listen Chris his attitude you can go up there and fuck up on stage 
stage and you can have an off night, but don't go up there with insincerity. Don't come out with any insincerity at all. You know, he'll tolerate you maybe, you know, being off key or having the odd flub, but he won't tolerate you up there being insincere and just phoning it in. And I, I really, really like that. What a wonderful comment and what a wonderful freedom that must be on stage is that you are so not terrified that you're going to hit a wrong note. You're just giving it your all, like Shane says. If you've seen Chris on stage, for example, and, and Shane mentions this in the short, that off stage he just sits there and, you know, I've seen Chris off stage uh, many times. He just sits there, arms folded. I'm thinking asleep. It's like he hasn't been asleep for about a week, but he's just sitting there in his own thoughts. And then he gets up on stage and he just, he launches. So when I came to Melbourne from Ballarat when I was uh, 18 or 19, whatever it was, right. I, I lived in uh, Middle Park and Paul Kelly was touring uh, with the Messengers at that time. It was uh, about 86, I think. And Paul Kelly was playing at the Middle Park Hotel, which was just around the corner from where I was living. A mate of mine said, let's go and check out Paul Kelly. And I said, yeah, for sure. So around we went. I remember Paul playing and singing that night. But the main thing I remember, there was this guy, this huge mad bear of a man he was mean he was angry and he could play incredible blues harp <laughs> amazing he was incredible to watch paul's jumping around the stage but this guy he was just pacing and looking and it was like he was going to jump from the stage into the crowd and just just take us all out but <laughs> i came away from that gig and that was the first time i'd seen chris wilson play have followed his career ever since and obviously it culminated when he and shane played that gig at the uh, continental Mm. What you were talking about, Chris being so stoic, you know, offstage and that, it's it's kind of funny because not to get off topic, but years ago I'd seen this old British punk band Killing Joke. They played in uh, Japan and I went over to see them and I actually got to sit down with their singer, Jazz Coleman, and he was saying that every time he goes on stage, it's like an exorcism and he says he has to purge everything that he's feeling inside and he's got to get every single ounce of it out on the stage and he said and it also allows the audience to have a purge as well and they all together have this kind of ritual exorcism that's kind of what i i get the feeling from chris is that you know he, he kind of bottles it up like you're saying then when he gets out on stage you just hear that cork pop and then he just lets it all flow and i think like you said earlier it's such a freedom it's so liberating and the audience feels it as well because you know you've got everybody you know that has had a shit week at work or maybe a breakup or you know they've got their own issues and they go in there and hear Chris going on about you know they're like I can relate to that yeah man exactly like that's what I feel too you know and it's just all of them it's almost like a collective cleansing you know I could be wrong but my feeling is that I, I imagine that Chris is quite a shy man I could be wrong there so it must be a wonderful feeling to get up on stage and unleash that inner self without those constraints of how he feels when he's off stage but the authenticity of how he does it is compelling it's magnetic morris i'm sure you've been to gigs where he hasn't even sang a song yet you know, from the first good evening everybody i'd like to thank the bar staff everybody he's got every time He's got the audience from the beginning, and, you know, he's a really funny man on stage. He's hysterical. I often thought to myself, if he gave up the music today and decided he was just going to be a stream-of-consciousness type of comedian, he'd make a, a living doing that too. And this sort of like leads me to think about the very beginning of your film, 
the opening is something that I heard him say a ton of times. He's introducing Shane and saying, Shane fucking Mara, everybody. It tells you so much about who he is. It's his humour. It's his admiration. Only in this country could we call someone fucking as their middle name and it's a sign of the utmost respect. You know, like, give it up, this guy is no fucking Mara. Yeah, and, and how many, and he doesn't stop. You know, if he gets six claps, it's not enough. So he'll keep going <laughs> until he gets a rawest clap. And Shane deserves a rawest clap because he's he's an incredible muso. He's an incredible right. artist. And he's so uh, self-appreciating but, too, Chris. Like when he's talking about it, he says, yeah, you know, I won an award at the Cherry Bar for having the uh, lowest yeah. number of audience members, you know. <laughs> and, then, and then when he talks about it, he says, and then that one gig I played, you know, he said the, the bartender pissed off halfway in the set and then two people showed up at the end and I said, oh, I'm already finished, sorry. <laughs> Chris, I think, knows who he is. And so right. he doesn't need to convince the audience of his worth. And I think Shane the same. And it reminds me of an old line years ago. There was an American band where they used to say, you know, thanks everyone for coming out. If it wasn't for you, it wouldn't be a gig. It would be a practice. You know? yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And the thing is that with Chris, he does the same thing no matter whether he's playing to an absolutely packed audience. And I've been in those gigs or whether there's only like a handful of people. So I went to see him maybe about you know, three months ago or so at the Cherry Bar after work one day. And it was still, it was 5.30. So there were only maybe about 10 people in the place, but he still played with his all. He was still cracking the same sort of jokes. He just wanted everyone to feel comfortable, feel at ease. And he gave it his all. Doesn't matter whether it's a small show or or a large show and, right, and you've right, completely, right, right. completely conveyed that so well in the film years ago I interviewed this guy Mike Watt and he had said something funny like that and I asked him about playing bass and he says you know I'm just a janitor he says it doesn't matter whether I have to clean a building or clean an office he said you know I've got to clean the room right and that's all I see Chris you know it's just the same way I've been to so many gigs as you say Morris where I just shake my head and I say this guy is, is a world class musician if he was American we'd all be down on our knees you know genuflecting as he came in the door because that's what we do with you know American musos at the top of the bill uh, when there's a gig you know how many times have you been to a show where we do have those artists come over and then you know one of our local Aussie uh, Melbourne guys get up and you go oh he's just blowing the other guy off stage like these guys are incredible as you say Morris he's playing to three people and I just shake my head and think where is everybody to be fair like I know during the 90s I recall seeing him many times where the room was pretty packed but then again though i think chris and shane were at one stage were like playing six nights a week i wonder if it's partly that generation of people who would go out every night you know they've all had mortgages had families aren't necessarily doing the going out sort of thing but you know chris is still there he's still plugging away that's why places like the caravan club are so important that old people like us can go <laughs> to a gig and and sit down at a gig and watch these guys sitting down at a, on stage Right. Playing wonderful music, we, we don't have to stand for the for the two and a half hour show. So sometimes now these gigs are a lot more intimate, perhaps, than the heavier gigs that they used to play. Sometimes, not always. I mean, you know, they still belt it out. You mentioned just now about the Caravan Club, and you include some footage 
in your film, which you call Live at the Continental, that's you know shot recently at the Caravan Club. I sort of see some unfortunate circular irony here because the Continental maybe about, I don't know, three, four years or so after that landmark album was recorded was gone because of its landlord not wanting to renew the lease. And now, unfortunately, here we are as we're recording this in September 2017. We've only just gotten the news that the Caravan, which really was 20 years later, it was the current incarnation of the Continental in spirit. And now we realize that that's going to go the way of the Dodo as well. One thing I wanted to bring up with your film, I actually was in Melbourne in January, the first time I've ever been to Australia, visiting Morris. And I actually asked Morris, I got downtown to the library and saw the Triple R exhibit, you know, and it, and it was amazing how they archived so much. And I said to Morris, I said, well, you know, is there an Australian music museum or, or a history of, of, you know, like almost like a rock and roll hall of fame for Australia? And Morris said, no. And I said, is, you know, is that true, Morris? Is there not one? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, I know we have the National Film and Sound Archive in Canberra, but is there a specific museum unless someone's doing something small in the back of their house or something like that? I've not right. heard of one. James Young from Cherry Bar should create one in ACDC Lane. Well, there oh. should be something. Because, I mean, what you're doing with your films, it's archivism, and I've got a background in history, and I mean, it's so understated how incredibly vital this format needs to be. Now, things are going by so fast, and like you guys are just talking about clubs shutting down, like, I mean, landmark places where so much happened and so much history occurred. And it really, to me, is such an ultimate shame that everyone's not desperately trying to document every single thing that's going down. And I know everyone doesn't have enough time to do all of this, but I'm just saying that, to me, some of my favorite music of all time and I'm not kidding about I'd say 30 to 40 percent of the music that I've always loved came from Australia so it shouldn't just be the bands that are documenting what they've done it should be some organization or facility or somewhere in Australia that should say okay we've got this footage we'll put it in we've got these photos we'll put it in and I think what you're doing is kind of a step towards doing I have to say that you know I commend you for doing that it's a great point you know there's a guy called Alan Lomax he you know, did this in, oh, yeah. in, in America he documented all the blues guys and right. thank God he did and you're right, there is a whole swag of musicians and stories just in this town, just in this genre of music. So forget about all the other genres that I probably don't pay much attention to. So I'm super keen on this uh, genre of blues, acoustic, alt country kind of area that I'm fascinated with. As you say, what a shame. At one point I was thinking, you know, if something happens to these guys, that album, Live at the Continental, was such, I don't know if landmark is quite the right word. Morris, you can help me with the right word here, but it was such a significant album of that era. The Continental Cafe was a really significant venue of that era, as Chris says in the film. So many artists came to the Conti and so many people went to see gigs and it was such a wonderful, wonderful, intimate venue. Great sound. You felt like you were like an arm's length distance from the performer. You weren't right down the back of of an arena. I think because I'm not a musician and uh, I'm a photographer or, or a documenter, let's say, I'm in an ideal position because if, you're, if I was a musician, I might not think that the talking about the craft is as worthy as doing the craft. Whereas from a punter's perspective, Morris, you and I were chatting about this the other day, that all these stories are of how they go about 
creating their work or how they go about playing live or their interaction with each other or which instrument they chose or why they that is really fascinating to the non-playing person to the to the non-musician we're fascinated or i am and i'm I'm thinking a lot of people are so when chris starts talking about you know how he got his first harmonica so I, i used to have a harmonica and i play harmonica now so i loved the story of him telling got his first harmonica put tape across the top rows and tried to emulate the guys that he was listening to on on the radio or records and when Shane talks about it, he got his acoustic guitar and he tried to plug it into his mum's reel-to-reel tape recorder and tried to turn it into a, an electric guitar. I think they're fascinating stories. What I really loved from a filmic perspective was how you chose to interweave those stories rather than write like his three minutes of Chris talking about his introduction to the harmonica and the great blues records that he picked up on and his three minutes of Shane O'Mara talking about how he first started on the classical guitar and then how he moved on to play other things but you interweave a few seconds of one a few seconds of the other and you interweave their stories until they converge later on with their point of commonality which was playing together I just thought from a film perspective from your editing and director's perspective that was a brilliant move the gist behind that was to give the subconscious feeling that these guys were on a trajectory to meet at some point and in their own bedrooms for hours and hours and hours tucked away uh, when everyone else is out riding their bikes, these guys sat in their bedrooms and played guitar, or these guys you know, sat in their bedroom and tried to figure out how to play cross harp instead of straight harp just by listening to records. Now, if you do it today, you jump on YouTube and there's a billion new tutorials on how to do it. Back then there wasn't. There was a record sleeve and a record and a book maybe, or maybe a magazine if you're lucky, but they worked it out themselves. That separate creativity or working that out and then coming together, as you say, Morris, kind of exploded into that, that event. The interplay comes from playing so many hundreds of gigs together, but I think right in the beginning, you guys have had this experience, I'm sure, where you've seen people get up on stage. They really don't know each other that well, but it's almost like the left hand knows exactly what the right hand's doing, and the right hand's just right along with the left hand, and it just goes together like a cold beer in August. That's exactly it. And if you've ever seen them play, you, you would understand exactly what you've just said, Tim. I mean, you, you look at how Shane plays with Chris. The thing that I love most about Shane's work is his subtlety. He can play one note or he can play two notes or he his face is so close to his fingers sometimes when he plays because he's so intimate with that guitar. It is, I mean, obviously, it's an amazingly beautiful thing to listen to, but it's a wonderful thing to watch when he plays. Really lovely. And he doesn't step on Chris's toes and, and, and vice versa. And Chris says in the film, you know, Shane is a, is a wonderful and accompanist. I imagine as a guitarist, you could just play as loud as you want, as you could. You could just want to step up there and, and blow the audience's head off or blow the singers to the back of the room. But that's not his role. I just read something recently where guys were talking about playing in a band, in an orchestra, like a jazz ensemble or something. And they said that playing is not knowing about when to play, but knowing when to breathe knowing when to kind of step back and let the other guy in or knowing exactly when to, you know, you don't have to play all the time. And I think that's the thing with Shane.
Payne, like you're saying, he can play one string or he can play two strings, but he knows when to breathe. It's almost like breath and the heartbeat. Chris is the heartbeat and Shane is the breath. And it's like they know when to kind of work together or when one takes over from the other. Speaking out of turn because I'm not a musician, but I think the older a musician gets, perhaps the less they play because the less they have to play. They are so much more comfortable in their own skin right. that they don't need to prove to anybody how good they are. They sure. are good. So just sit back and listen. I want to create space around it. Create space in anything. I mean, if you look at this film, there is a piece in this film where the camera is on a tripod or a monopod and it's just filming Chris's face effectively. And it, it goes for a good while, I don't know how long, but say a minute, and it's just of Chris. So we're not cutting back and forward to anything else. Chris is talking over it, but in the vision, his you know, mouth's not moving. It's not actually him speaking to camera. But there's this really, really long shot of Chris. Now, there's a, there's a great deal of space created in a film. So it's a bit of luxury, because say someone might say, oh, well, you're going to lose your audience here. But what I was feeling was, no, this is who he is. I imagine he's spends a lot of time in his own thoughts and ironically uh, I was in the, the band room at the caravan and this is when I was filming this little piece and right up until the point where I cut that's the time when he tells me to uh, <laughs> that's enough you can, you can get out of the room now <laughs> <laughs> I think the expression that Shane used about Chris was he's like Buddha and watching that one minute of footage I know what you're talking about thinking wow he really is like Buddha and then he comes out on stage and as we've already been speaking about earlier on he absolutely explodes you show at one point Chris and Shane are performing I think it was Wolves and you intersperse the caravan footage with footage from the Continental I'm guessing it was from the Continental the black and white footage so how hard was it for you to actually find any old film of Chris apart from a couple of things of him on ABC Recovery there's not a lot out there he even he told me in an interview that I did with him for the Love That Album podcast that there are a couple of film clips for uh, the big one in Alimony Blues, which he says that he made, and I couldn't find them anywhere. So how difficult was it for you to go and find the footage that you used? That intertwining of that song with the old footage was a fluke. One of the pieces that I got from the caravan when I was shooting, one of the best coverages was this song. And so I've started to edit that song. And you know, I'm constantly looking back on uh, YouTube and, and wherever else to try and find older footage of Chris. And I've fluked upon this footage. And so I spoke to Shane and, and oh, I sent it over to Shane and said, what's the go here? To me, it doesn't look like it was shot at the Continental. And obviously it's about, it's the song from the album and, and it is the version from the album. But it kind of just didn't look like it was shot from the Continental, but Shane seemed to think it was because I said, well, you would remember if you did a film clip just for this song. And he doesn't, and Chris didn't. But I love how when it morphs from one to the other, just this flashback of Chris Hanshane, I suppose, they, they look a tad older nowadays than they did back in the day. But the level of the performance is still the same. The energy that's being pumped into both performances, today's and back in the day, are just as strong. You know, right. in, in that black and white footage of Chris, how he throws his head back. It's wonderful to watch. 
I saw them perform for the first time in many, many years because they only play sporadically nowadays, as you'd know, Chris. And mm. uh, I saw them perform in Williamstown, I think about two years ago at a venue. I think it's the substation. And yep. ex exactly what you just said, the level of drama, the intensity, they know when to turn it up. They know when to pull it back. It was like it spent no time apart at all. You know, Chris was in fine voice and fine heart playing ability. I mean, look, I'd seen him many times in the interim years without Shane but you know so that was no surprise but it was just a revelation seeing the two of them together they're both magnificent apart but there's just something sublime with the two of them together and so that makes me want to ask how did they accept your approach to make a film about them given that they only do play so sporadically nowadays the way I approached it was I thought I probably won't have a hope getting Chris on board if I approached Chris he might not say no but he just might not get around to it so I thought I sent him over to Shane and, and asked him and uh, I'd made a couple of other short docos of Melbourne musicians Ian Collard and, and the Three Kings so um, Ian Collard Benny Peters and Jason Lassoon and I also made one with Susanna Espy and so I sent him over that work and said look I'd really like to put together a piece about you and Chris in regards to the Live at the Continental album. And Shane was keen, and I left it up to Shane to convince Chris. Chris was lovely on the day and, and gave me time for an interview, and, and I filmed him rehearsing and, and whatever. But I think it probably wasn't until he saw it maybe that he kind of understood what I was doing or the, or the perhaps even the, the worth of what I was doing. As right. you say, Tim, the, the kind of the archivalness right. of, of the doco. But... It was a little bit of a, a process to get them on board and get them together. I would have loved to have had more access. I would have loved, you know, if, say if they were touring, to just be with right. them for a lot, lot longer. And if it, right. if I was, then maybe the film would be a bit, bit longer as well. My favourite part in all of it is not even Chris playing because, you know, as we've mentioned a couple of times, you know, the last bit here, we've said, you know, that you know, Shane described Chris as like a Buddha. And there's a point where I'm not going to say that Chris has got religion, but he's almost the, the music is his religion, you know. And he says, uh, no, I don't have any regrets for anything I've done. No. And he starts kind of grinning off the side of his mouth. He says, no, not at all. Not at all. You know, he knows that he's exactly where he's meant to be. He, he, yeah. he's, right, he's right where he belongs. And it's almost like he's like, no, I got religion. I, I've been saved. I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones. And it's just that music, like you're saying, he's like a Buddha or something. Or he's, he's kind of got that enlightenment now. And, you know, and he shares it. I mean, every every time he gets out there on stage. You know those people that have religion sometimes and you can see it in their face and you can see it in their conviction. And that's exactly what I get the feeling when I see Chris playing on, on YouTube or I've seen the footage that you've got. They're both really very intelligent men and um, I think that comes across when they speak. That probably led to their diligence in, in, with their instruments. Uh, it just wasn't in the back shed on a weekend. That became their life and they've immersed themselves not just in their instrument, but in the genre of which they play. It's really inspiring to watch and to be in the presence of people like that. You can take that back into your own field. Sure, it's a force of nature. Like you were saying earlier about how a lot of people are on stage, you know, phoning it in, or even filmmakers, a lot of times, you know, they, they try to add relevance to 
the subject matter that they're shooting or they try to give it a bit more boom for a bit more drama or a bit more significance. With this, it's almost like you just had to kind of stand back and film what you shot and just let it occur, let it flow. You know, I mean, there, it almost seems like you really didn't have to do anything with, with Chris and Shane. They were just, you know, like I said, like a force of nature, house on fire. You just stood back and watched it burn. Yeah, quite funny stories. At one point in the film where you're showing the footage from the Caravan Club, we get to see a very brief glimpse of a drummer, Cat Lay, who actually I hadn't sort of seen anything of her before. Can you give us a little bit of well, information about her? Yeah, you would have. So when you mentioned the gig oh, the that you went to the substation, the substation yeah. that, was, that was the first time that I saw Chris and Shane playing with Cat, and I remember saying to my partner that night, wow, <laughs> who's the drummer? Because uh, I hadn't seen Cat play before. And so when it came to time to shoot this film, uh, I remembered her from that night. You know, Chris and Shane did a, a practice before the gig one, mind you, uh, and I was filming at that, and Kat wasn't at that uh, practice. But on the night she slots straight in. And maybe that's just normal for music, that they can just sit in a gig without a practice. But uh, yeah, wonderful, wonderful drama. Yeah. Wow. Uh, she was sympathetic to their playing. You can get three brilliant musicians and they're not listening to each other, but she's listening no. to what they're doing and she's playing accordingly. So that's what... Right. Yeah, you can, you can watch that in her face. You know, she's, again, she's honed in. Again, it was what I was saying about the left hand knowing what the right hand's doing. It's like sometimes people can just sit down and it just fits like a glove. Did you actually deal much with Peter while you were making the film? Yeah, Peter was lovely. I mean, I tried to keep out of his way as much as I could because, you know, the last thing that either musicians or venue owners need or want are a film crew that think the most important thing at the venue is the film crew. I remained as low-key, no lighting, obviously you don't need it, they've got the lighting happening. Just tried to keep low-key and and kept them in mind all the time. And Peter was lovely. Peter allowed me into the, into the band room and out the back and accommodating and gave me carte blanche as to what I could do. But he knows his stuff, doesn't he, Peter? He does. How many people were in your crew as such? So it was you with the camera? One. With the, so it was just you? <laughs> I say film crew. It's like the Royal We. <laughs> the, the film crew of one. Okay. It's I mean, kind of as important when I got into the band room because, as I told you earlier, that there was an expiry on my time that I could sit there before Chris had effectively had enough. So I mean, if there were two guys sitting there with cameras watching, you know, maybe that time might have been halved. Had you at any stage ever seen any lineups of The Crown of Thorns? I'm presuming that you saw the Peter Luskin, Bill McDonald, Shane O'Mara version of Chris Wilson's band, but had you seen him ever perform with Barb Waters and Ash? Davies in that early incarnation of the Crown of Thorns? I would have, but sadly my memory's not the best. I've seen the Crown of Thorns a number of times, but I don't have a lot of memory about it and I probably can't add much to that question. I'm sorry, Morris. No, no, that's fine. So as a result of that, sort of didn't feel tempted to, at some stage, make another short film or made a, a longer film covering the various incarnations of what Chris has done over the years? No, I'd, I'd say no. But there is one point that I would that has just come back into my mind. is When I began the project, the idea of the project was to document the Live of the Continental album and that point in time when that happened. And it wasn't until I sat down at the editing desk that is some way into the edit that I realised this film is not about the album as such, um, even though, ironically, I've called it that name. But 
this film is about the relationship between these two musicians, between these two guys, and how, how deep it runs and how strong it's connected by music. And that's really the message or the strength of what I then tried to create with the film. Chris, to go back to the archivism thing just for a minute now that, you, like you said, that, you know, you did a number of films before this, like about The Three Kings and that. Have you ever considered actually looking at it as doing kind of a series and doing some more shorts that would actually be kind of compiled in a collection of Melbourne performers? Yeah, I have. I, I was thinking about this the other day and I'm thinking it's actually in its infancy stage now that I really start to look at all the uh, films, which, which aren't a lot, but they're of a particular genre and they're starting to look as one body of work. And as I... I'm introduced to an artist or I know an artist uh, quite a while, but then start to think, yeah, I, I could really see how I could create a film about that person. So, Tim, I think you're right. I think this could become a body of work that could be one collection, let's say. I'd, I'd like to take it a little bit deeper and, and explore in, in not just the musical sense, but, you know, when I'm creating a film, I'm looking at an artist and, and looking at something a little deeper than just how they play or why they play, but maybe other aspects of their life or other passions that they have and try and intervene, intervene that or intersperse that into the film. This isn't a blues guy or anything, but I was actually thinking of one guy in particular in Melbourne. I was thinking Freddie Negro. I draw the uh, hub strip in, uh, in press and various other publications. Been coming up to about 400 strips now. And basically what I do is just chronicle the... Uh, the history of rat bags in St Kilda. He'd be a real character to, <laughs> to sit down because, I mean, with all the music that he's done in Melbourne and, he, and he's an artist and a real significant guy that stands out and he was one guy that just came to mind. There are so many musicians in this genre just in this town. I yeah. wouldn't have to get on a plane and go to Sydney. Oh, no, no, no. You'd find, well, you'd find no one there. Whoops. I've, I've lost my Sydney audience, both of them. Yeah, those three guys have just switched off. <laughs> I guess looking forward, so the only two things I guess I wanted to ask to close off, who is it that you have in mind, or do you have another project in mind for the short-term future? I do, but I probably wouldn't want to say, Morris. Okay, no worries. Is, no worries. Just, good for your podcast. Just make us your first port of call when you do get something out there. I will put links in the Facebook page for people to watch the other films, the films that you did about Three Kings and Susanna Espy, which are all really excellent. They're all on YouTube. How are people going to be able to see Live the Continental? We've got four screenings happening at the Nova Cinema in Carlton later in September and early October. So I have details of that on my website, which is franklinimage.com.au. And the Go-Betweens have just brought out a, a new documentary. You might have seen that advertised around. And so this film, Live the Continental, will be screened as a pre-runner to the Go-Betweens. So um, you can check out the dates on my website. I think that's really a wonderful thing. Within a short period of time, we've had, in terms of full feature-length documentaries, we've had this Go-Betweens documentary, and also there's been the recent Radio Birdman, Descended to the yeah. Maelstrom. I mean, what a fantastic genre. For punters that are absolutely enthralled in what these guys do, to be able to go and watch this on the screen, I think right. is fantastic. So thanks once again to you, Chris, for uh, joining us here on See Here. It's really been our pleasure to have this wonderful chat about musicians who we absolutely all adore. Right. Thanks very, thanks very much, Morris, and thank you, Tim. No problem. Our pleasure. All right. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to See Here, episode 44.
thanks very much to Chris Franklin for providing us with really such a terrific interview there. Learned quite a lot about his filmmaking process and what it was like to actually hang out with Chris and Shane. So once again, if you're in Melbourne, and I'm, look, I haven't really checked into this. I, I'm guessing that Chris may go around the rest of the country. If you see that he's booked to do some gigs in Sydney or elsewhere in the country with people like Jeff Atchison or with Shannon Bourne or any one of the other magnificent musicians who he plays with, just go out and see him. Absolutely. And certainly if Chris and Shane do something interstate, just go. You've got to see the guys and delve into the back catalogue. Anything that's got their name on it is a hallmark of quality. All right. So next month, Tim, we're going to do one of two things. We're either going to go for a listener request, because we still got two more of those to cover, or we have an interview. Now, I don't want to say who the interview is with, because we're still in negotiations. So that may happen next month, or it may not. But if it doesn't happen next month, then our listener request is from Lily Sock Monkey. Woo! Lily. Lily, oh Lily. Lily is now going by a different name on Facebook now because bloody Facebook rules. I, I think now she's known as Silly Sock Monkey. <laughs> silly Sock Monkey. Yes, Silly Sock Monkey. This is for yeah. you. So she went and requested the Walter Hill film Streets of Fire, which Ooh. is on my list of shame. But, oh, man. So I believe I'm in for a treat. I know that our community, it is a beloved I'm, film. So I'm going to send Tom Cody after you, man. Uh-oh. I'm in trouble. So if that might be our October film, if it is not our October film, if we if this interview comes along, then it'll be our November film. So um, we'll see how we go. But further information on the Book of Faces, if the interview does come through, we'll be doing Streets of Fire sooner than later. Stay tuned for that. Final thoughts, Mr. Tim, before we um, exit? I just wanted to thank uh, Chris as well. We really appreciate you taking the time and giving us your insight on uh, making the film. And once we find out uh, more information about the film getting a wider release, uh, we'll put it up on the Facebook page. And we want to let everybody know as much as possible to really get a chance to uh, take a peek at this thing because it's fantastic. And I guarantee you that once you watch the film about Shane and Chris, then you'll basically do all you can to try to find out and listen to uh, the work of Chris Wilson. Mm, Indeed. And just to reiterate once more, if you're listening to this in September of 2017, then you do have the opportunity to see this uh, short film over a number of sessions coming up at the Nova Cinema in Carlton. It's going to be shown as, I guess, a a curtain raiser to the documentary that's been directed by Creve Stenders about the go-betweens. That's going to be a sensational double feature i'm looking forward to going out to the nova and catching both films on the big screen so check your newspapers or nova website for session times and details we'll see you next month for episode 45 of see here podcast either our interview or streets of fire with bernie coming back and he can rave about this stiff little fingers gig that he went to and he might be bringing silly sock i mean lily sock monkey with him to uh, join in the conversation so that will be absolutely fantastic the pressure's on so until next month please be nice to each other and we'll speak to you with more music and film talk next month all the best cheers
I wouldn't have no 